Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today's episode number 410, Army to CEO at Safe Traces with Eric Malmstrom. And I'm getting phone calls and panicked, as you can understand uh, from, from them, of how do we get out of here and why has the U.S. done this? That punches me in the gut. It is something where many veterans who have personal relationships with these interpreters um, are are just feeling like they left their their buddies on the battlefield and their families, and it just does not sit well. Problem may be out of the front page news. It is something that many veterans are dealing with and fighting for. I am not going to be okay with just letting this go. I'm not going to forget. This was a difficult episode to name because we covered so much ground in in so many new ways. Uh, It was different for me as well because I've known Eric for about 10 years. We've never really talked about either of our military service. And so it was nice to get that added lens. Uh, Eric is a man I tremendously respect. You'll hear his background, which is unbelievably impressive. But a few things that we talked about that stood out to me is, first of all, where we start the conversation, which is an alternate view on the veteran transition that I've never heard before. It really puts veterans trends in a different light. And I I think it's very thought provoking. Second of all is Eric's work around um, Afghanistan, which he has done for the last 10 years of helping friendlies get out of Afghanistan, making sure that they're safe. And it really comes through his passion about that and how I think his character just comes through in spades, hearing about how he talks about his ongoing commitment there. And, And in particular, the last couple of months, how that has evolved. Third of all, Eric has an amazing story of work in the food and agriculture space. He talks about why that's so important to him. And then fourth, in his own entrepreneurial journey with Safe Traces, it is really remarkable to hear about the crazy journey that the quarantine put on his company and how they were able to pivot into something even bigger when most companies honestly would have gone out of business easily and instead they're thriving due to their adaptability. And he talks about how the military training was such an asset in that way. As always at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss as well as 409 other episodes just like this all offered for free at beyondtheuniform.org. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Eric. Well, joining me today in Pleasanton, California, my guest is Eric Malmstrom. Eric, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Thanks so much for having me, Justin. Great to be here. So for context for listeners, I've known Eric for, God, 10 years now. It's actually exciting because I feel like probably like most veterans I know, I never really talk about the military with with other fellow veterans. So it feels like a chance to get to know a side of you that I, I honestly don't really know. And it was also tempting to just kind of blow through the full hour, just catching up in general, because I never get enough time to chat with you. But we did shift paces and click record. So let me give our listeners uh, an abbreviated background on Eric. He's the CEO of Safe Traces, a biotechnology company that is harnessing the power of DNA. Safe Traces has developed groundbreaking solutions for food and drug traceability, sanitation verification, 
and safe airflow verification that addresses our fundamental human need for safety. Eric started out at the University of Pennsylvania, after which he served for nearly seven years in the Army, where he graduated from Army Ranger School and Airborne School and earned the Bronze Star Medal for his service as rifle platoon leader during deployments to Eastern Afghanistan. After his military service, he earned degrees at both the Harvard Business School and Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. His career has included time at Cargill, working on food, agriculture, nutrition, and risk management, time as a White House fellow, and time as general manager of the Farmers Business Network, a company that has now raised over $250 million in capital. So let me, let me take a breath there. Actually, maybe to start things off, I want to go through some kind of typical career stuff, but I know we had spoken very, very briefly about your thoughts on veteran reintegration. And I'd love to just make room for you to share some of the, the uh, maybe non-traditional ideas you have about that. Sure thing. Well, thanks so much, Justin. I think what's been interesting is a, a veteran going through reintegration myself, seeing the experience of a lot of my friends and f- former colleagues in the, the Army and the 10th Mountain Division. In the media, th- there's, I'd say, common portrayals of, of veterans, which range from, I think, very supportive. And there's still extremely positive sentiment towards veterans amongst the public, by and large. But there's also a lot of focus in the popular media on the problems that royal veterans, especially as they come back from combat related to PTSD and mental health, to substance abuse, to lots of other challenges. And I'd say that in some ways you kind of see that and it, it gives off a perception of, of veterans, I think, that is negative. It's, it's real in many ways and a lot of veterans struggle with those challenges. But I think the the interesting story behind that, in my view, and and this was something that Sebastian Younger, writer who did multiple uh, combat deployments with army units in in Afghanistan, where where I was, kind of hits on is that rather than veterans being someone, being a group that have a problem reintegrating, I think that what Younger and some others have highlighted is that in some ways, the society that they're reintegrating into themselves has a lot of dysfunction and challenges. And that is what is driving some of the veteran kind of issues themselves. Many veterans are coming from tight knit units where they had a strong community of other people who they served with, who they went through formative and often difficult experiences with, and who they could relate to, they could talk to. And there's a really tight knit bond. And, and uh, studies have shown that those uh, bonds formed through combat are in many cases stronger than even marriage between partners and a husband and a wife. So it's very tight. When they leave that, they often have trouble relating to others in their community and people who can relate to the experiences. And then meanwhile, American society today has a lot of challenges. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of focus on divisions within different parts of the country, whether political or socioeconomic. And I think it's really hard for veterans to process that when they're used to having such a tight-knit community. And so then what kind of knock-on effects of that are a lot of these other challenges that we see that I went through, the PTSD, the alcoholism, the depression, the suicide in some cases. And I think that my point with that, and I think this resonates with me more and more, is that I think that American society 
has a lot to learn from the military and from veterans as much as veterans have to learn from American society. And their reintegration is something for us to consider more seriously of why are they having these reintegration problems and putting the spotlight back on our society and our communities and why this is a problem. I love that. I haven't actually heard that before. And it does make me think back to my time on submarines where it's like, of course you have differences with people, but it's like, at the end of the day, you're going to work together. You're, you have like a, a shared set of values. And that's not the sense I have now, you know, 10 plus years out of the military. It's not this sense of like, put our differences aside, we'll push in the same direction. And I like that framing where it's it's almost like the bonds and the sense of community in the military is in many ways, that's more desirable. That's actually a better sense of belonging and then when you leave, there is a sense of this artificial sense of separateness and individualness that doesn't lead to that sense of connection and fulfillment that a lot of us experience in the military. And what I like most about that is, yeah, it does put more of the, the onus on society of like, what, what is going on with us people that like, this is the problem. It's not that veterans are broken coming back to a great society. It's the other way, you know, in some ways it's the other way around. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I don't want to romanticize the military too much because there's a lot of good and bad, and we need to acknowledge that. And it's a paragon in some ways, and in other ways, it's absolutely not. But I think the basic idea that you, people from all different stripes come together in pursuit of a common mission and a common goal, and whether what your race and ethnic background is, your education, where you're from in the country, there's a, a coming together effect that happens through training and then through service that is very, very powerful and I feel like is increasingly absent in American society. We are more focused on sub-communities. Let me say, I think those communities are great. It's natural that that happens and there's strength in those communities, but the commonality of what it means to be an American today I think that more than ever in, in my lifetime, and maybe for older people too, it just seems like we're fixated on the stuff that separates us than the stuff that unifies us. And I think that is very jarring for veterans. It's jarring for me. It really is hard to understand why are we behaving that way? Why are our leaders kind of pouring fuel on the fire as opposed to uniting us? So. I love that. I love that. I want to talk in a second about Afghanistan and some of the work you've done over the last decade there, but I wanted to just kind of continue the thread of reintegration and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm remembering that I, I believe when you left the army, you took time and you went to like Uganda for a while. And not only I imagine was that a period of just kind of catching your breath before going off to education, but you also got a, a spouse out of that trip. Could you just talk about like what your own transition was like out of the army and what role that maybe decompression time in Uganda served for you? So I got back from a 16-month deployment to eastern Afghanistan in the summer of 2007. And right around that time, I found that I applied when I was deployed for a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship to go to East Africa to study post-conflict development. And the way that 
scholarship works is that if you win it, you get uh, put into a master's program at some local university in whatever region or country you go to. And then you're studying and immersing yourself in that country's higher ed system. But then you're doing service work with local rotary chapters. And so I, coming out of Afghanistan, I was very passionate about the role that economic and private sector development plays in advancing conflict and post-conflict societies ahead to a better place. And so East Africa was a great place to study that. So I I was lucky enough to win a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship, uh, studied for a year at a university called Makarari University, which is the leading university in Uganda. And so it, it was a bit weird. I had about a year back in the U.S. after my deployment where I was fully off for a few. So I I moved from active duty to National Guard service after my deployment. And then I did about a seven or eight month stint in the Vermont National Guard at the beginning of 2008, working for the director of the joint staff in a full-time capacity in Vermont. My family was living in Vermont at the time. So I had a little bit of U.S. time and I was still in a kind of military environment, although not on a base, but just in a National Guard unit amidst a a, a non-military community. And that was good. And and so I I had enough support there and people who kind of understood my experience where, and then the the benefit of my family being around too, that helped with the reintegration. And then going to Africa was just an amazing experience. I guess in some ways it helped being back in a non-US environment to be in an environment more like Afghanistan, where you're kind of a a foreigner mixed in amongst a, a local population. But then also reevaluating kind of my own service, having time and space to do that. As you mentioned, I met my wife, who's American, but lived uh, coincidentally in my same housing compound. And so that was amazing. And say there were certainly challenges of going from a combat deployment that was long and hard. And there are a lot of real significant challenges, including losing some of my guys tragically and my commander. But I felt like the combination of the experience from going National Guard to then being abroad before coming back to the U.S., I was able to ease into reintegration. Then one one thing I didn't mention is before I went into the full-time Guard service, I took three months for myself where I was completely separated from the military and had no job. And I subletted a place in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I really felt like it was important for me to have time to reconcile some of the losses that we took in our deployment. And so I was, during that time, writing, doing a lot of outdoors work or expeditions, kind of hiking through the parks in the West. And I feel like that allowed me to confront a lot of the difficult experience what experiences that we went through in a way that was a multi- hard at the time, but emotionally made me in a stronger place down the road as opposed to me just diving directly into the next thing and then burying a lot of stuff. And then when people do that, it tends to resurface itself down the road in very unhealthy ways. And so I think in retrospect, that was a great thing for me to do. That's great. I love this sense of the three months for yourself and prioritizing self-care. It is interesting to think of the transition from the army to the National Guard and having some continuity and some difference there. But I think it's most interesting, this thought of Uganda, where 
it had elements of a deployment, but then in a non-military setting. It's like an interesting spin on something that's somewhat familiar, but changing enough of the of the attributes to have it be a transitional element. I also wanted to ask you, I'm just fascinated because obviously recently a lot has changed in Afghanistan. I'd love to kind of hear your involvement there, but your kind of commitment to helping people in Afghanistan, it wasn't just like a, we're leaving and, and now, you know, Eric's posting about this on LinkedIn. Like you, you have been actively involved for about a decade. And so I, maybe we can start with what you have been doing for the last 10 years to support the different pro-US Afghans and then how that may have changed in the last, I guess, three months here. So to go back and kind of picking up on the Uganda experience. After that year I spent Uganda, I started my grad program at uh, HBS in the Kennedy School and quickly linked up with another veteran who was in my joint program named Jake Cusack, who is a former Marine who had done a couple of deployments to Iraq. And he and I had very similar experiences in some respects. I mean, they're very different deployments, but basically we walked away from our experience saying there's a lot wrong about the way that the U.S. engaged in Afghanistan and Iraq. And beyond just military intervention, there are other components to the way that the U.S. and the international community needs to engage in places like Iraq and Afghanistan that put more focus and attention and more thought into how we engage to support those countries economically in a way that's sustainable and not just fueled by piling in aid money that then gets doesn't really have the desired impact. So he and I linked up early on in the program, started doing research and putting on events related to post-conflict development, specifically on frontier economies and frontier markets. And that uh, led me and him back to Afghanistan in the summer of 2010, where he and I got a research grant from the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation to study frontier market development in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And so we were in the field and I went back solo. He and I both separately went to Afghanistan, bought commercial tickets to fly into Kabul, and then just stayed in local hotels, grew up beards, dressed in local you know, garb, and traveled around the country talking to entrepreneurs and others in Afghanistan, you know, ranging from high-level government officials, warlords, to local business people of how are you actually making money and running a business in a place like Afghanistan? So I was back there. And then subsequent summers, I went back two more times solo on various consulting projects. And we, we uh, eventually started a company called Cross Boundary that focuses on frontier market investment advisory. And, uh, and so I was back there. And over the course of this time, I developed lots of relationships with Afghans, and not only the ones that I'd encountered on my army deployment, where I was very close with Afghan security forces, government officials, also interpreters, but then I met new people along the way. And it was, I, I really grew fond of the people and the place and the culture and developed a lot of real deep friendships and relationships. Over the, the years uh, after the army, I worked with uh, several interpreters 
to get them through the special immigrant visa or SIV process. And this is a program that's gotten a lot of coverage recently, but it's it's a program designed for high-risk Afghans and, and Iraqis who worked closely with the U.S. military and forces, either in a translator capacity or otherwise, uh, and who are at high risk of due to their affiliation with the U.S. of being killed and targeted and so forth. And my interpreters were people who were indispensable. You know, the ones that I worked with, and and I think many veterans would attest to this, I mean, they are part of your unit. They are as much a part of your unit as your actual soldiers are. They are, and, and as a leader, I mean, they're your lens into the local society and the culture. You know, understand, like, being a young American in tribal, rural Afghanistan, it's a hard place to be and very foreign and exotic. And these translators basically, you know, not only just, you know, parrot whatever you're saying in the local language, but they're guiding you on how to engage with the leadership, what's going on in various negotiations and dynamics you may not appreciate. And then they're also there when the bullets and the RPGs start flying and the mortars are coming in. They are on the battlefield with you. I think they take tremendous risk. They're incredibly courageous. They provide unbelievable value and service to the U.S. military. And I believe through that, many of them are doing that across multiple years and multiple army and U.S. military units in Afghanistan and Iraq. At some point, I feel like they've done their time and they've earned their right to come to the U.S. and build a better life, both because it's not safe for them in their countries and Number two, I feel like, you know, they've done everything to demonstrate their duty and loyalty and commitment to the U.S. And they want something better. They want the ability to have the opportunities that Americans have, employment, educational, a better life for their their families and their kids. And I believe very strongly. So anyway, I worked through the social immigrant visa process with several interpreters, which is very a very broken process and was broken prior to the recent evacuation and is still broken. And it takes a lot of work and someone being very hands-on to successfully get someone through that program. And so I did that with interpreters and it was hard, but it was worth it. And now fast forward to uh, the past few months into the evacuation Due to years of dysfunction in that program, combined with a very rapid and, in my view, bungled with withdrawal and evacuation, there were tens of thousands of Af- high-risk Afghans who are eligible for that program, who had applied, who had been accepted, or who are in the pipeline, or who never even got their application submitted, who are basically caught in Afghanistan as things were rapidly deteriorating. And then we stuck to this August 31st deadline, and we all, U.S. public, saw how that went, and it was not a great experience. And then things ended. And now a lot of those same interpreters and other people are stuck behind in Afghanistan. Is it Taliban and uh, ISIS are running rampant in the country and they are right in the crosshairs of being targeted for killing, for imprisonment, detention. I I have, so I was uh, able to help one guy get out, although tragically he left his wife and kids behind. And now we have to figure out how to get them out. But then many other people I was working to help get out are still stuck there. And some of them are already under Taliban detention. And I'm getting 
phone calls and panicked, as you can understand from them, of how do we get out here and why has the U.S. done this? That punches me in the gut. It is something where many veterans who have personal relationships with these interpreters are just feeling like they left their buddies on the battlefield and their families, and it just does not sit well, and it's not going to go away. While this problem may be out of the front page news, it is something that many veterans are dealing with and fighting for. And whether it's dealing with the administration and the State Department or just at a personal level, trying to figure out any way we can to get these guys out. I am not going to be OK with just letting this go. I'm not going to forget. And also, we're not going to abandon people. And as you mentioned, beyond just my work with my own interpreters, I was a spokesperson for the International Refugee Assistance Project, trying telling my story in the media and at events of why this is so important. And uh, it's just been devastating to see what's happened recently. We just have not addressed this problem. And now it's really at a much severe level than it needs to be. We need to fix it. This is something where we just cannot forget about it. We need to fix this problem. Really appreciate that. And my lens the last couple of months, you know, it it was what you were describing was so removed from my own experience on a submarine, you know, nowhere near Afghanistan. And so I feel like, and being 10 years out of the military, I feel like when this started to go down, it, it was strange for me as a veteran to see other veterans experience where I had really like no frame of reference for it. So I really, really appreciate that for myself. I'm curious if for those listening who share your passion for this, are there any organizations or anywhere you would direct them to be able to have a voice or contribute financially or in some way feel like they're helping to move this in the right direction? There are many. One that particularly positive about is the International Refugee Assistance Project, IRAP. They are a fantastic organization led by a really amazing woman, uh, Becca Heller. And they've been doing this now for, I believe, over 10 years. And they specifically focus on Afghan and Iraqi uh, high-risk folks who are working with the U.S. military. Uh, they, they support many more people beyond that. But they really focus on how do you get people through the process of being in their home country to the U.S. And they have great lawyers and other support staff who understand those processes and can navigate people and have navigated a lot of people out of these these home country risky environments to the U.S. And they're amazing. There are others out there, but that's one that I think is, is fantastic. That's only half of the equation, though. The other half is once you, so that's all like, how do you get someone out and how do you get them over here? Then in many ways, and as I've seen with my interpreters who have been here for several years, they then are here and there's not great services available to them of finding housing, finding a job, doing basic stuff to get a driver's license and all the things you need to function at a basic level in the U.S. And then having to deal with if they have education, it's probably not valued here by the job market. So they may need to go back to school. There's just a lot of things and having proper support amongst their local communities, their expat communities, where a lot of Afghans tend to gravitate towards, um, which provides some degree of support, but then they need to have uh, uh, connections to non-Afghans as well. And so, I mean, a lot there are organizations out there, I don't have any off the top of my head, but some of that's 
stuff also goes beyond support organizations to government services. So I think that I can follow up with you on some recommendations, but the International Refugee Assistance Project is really phenomenal. I, I think they, they're, they're amazing, and I would highly recommend people get engaged who care about this, whether it's donating or volunteering in different ways. And for listeners at beyondtheuniform.org in the show notes for this episode, we'll put links there for IRAP and, and any other of those resources. I want to switch gears a little bit and I feel a little bit awkward doing that because I think that what you're what you're talking about is is so relevant and profound. And I'll continue the thread with you. Perhaps we can try and get Becky Heller on the show to, to talk about that or give, give her more of a microphone. I wanted to talk about your own career path and, and a lot of this is my own personal curiosity. So as an external person, as I look at your career, one of the through lines for me seems to be something around food and safety and environmental safety. And I see that with Cargill. I see that with your work at Farmers Business Network and now Safe Traces. I'm guessing this maybe started at Harvard Business School. Was that an intentional focus on this industry or group of industries? And if so, what was the driving force for you saying, okay, this is what I want to dedicate the next chapter of my career to? So my, you're right, food and agriculture has been a theme throughout my career, including ironically in the army, where you've got a lot of farmers in Afghanistan who we want to not be farming poppy. We want them to be farming other things, but it's kind of popped its head up at different points in my career in different ways. But I'm very passionate about the food system. And it goes back to actually pre-college. I took a year off in between high school and college and worked on farms in New Zealand for nearly a year. So organic farms, uh, commercial, commercial farms. And I just love the realness of food, both from a intellectually being fascinated about how you produce food and how you process food and all the all the stuff to get all the way to where what people eat but then all the implications of food from a health and wellness perspective from an environmental sustainability perspective from an international trade perspective food is a fascinating area And it just really captured my attention. So in college, I studied economics and international relations, not really exclusively focused on food. In the Army, as I mentioned, during my deployment, we were dealing in rural areas where there's a lot of farming, whether it was goat herding or actually growing things. And it's something agriculture touches a lot of people, particularly in the developing world, it's a big employer. Um, it's very important to the economic fortunes of a country. And for me, it was a vehicle to help people. You know, Aside from it being interesting to me, it was a way of helping people, whether it's dealing with all the stuff I mentioned or even food security of making sure people in poverty have food. So I, I really like that. And along the way in, in East Africa, in my time in Uganda, and then uh, subsequently at Cargill and even my White House fellowship where I was working in the trade representative's office at the White House, but focused on ag issues. Uh, and then my work on its Farmers Business Network. I just think there's so many 
big important issues related to food that make for a fascinating and fruitful career. And I guess it also connects back to what I really am excited about with food and everything I've done is really mission. Mission of how is food a way to help people and how to create a better world, a more environmentally sustainable world. To me, if there's not a mission that I can be passionate about, then I literally don't care about something. It's not like all the money in the world cannot get me excited about something if I'm not fired up about the mission. And food has been a great uh, a great area for me from a mission standpoint as well. I think we connected shortly after you joined Safe Traces and I wanna make space for you to talk about what you're doing there. But I'm curious, what was the jump from your work at um, Farmers Business Network? Like, how did you hear about Safe Traces? How did you make that jump? And I may be misinterpreting this, but it felt like you joined Safe Traces, which has a, a pretty broad application, but you joined it right at this turn, right around the turning point of COVID and then your company having a, a very big role in, in combating that. So could you talk about that transition? And I'm I'm always curious about these stories too for listeners who are thinking of a career change. So it's interesting to see like, how do these new opportunities come about and how do you, with so many successes behind you say like, okay, I'm gonna take a leap of faith towards, towards something relatively smaller than anything I've done up until now. Farmers Business Network, where I was lucky to work for a couple of years right after my government service is an amazing company. It's a now a multi-billion dollar valuation uh, ag tech company that focuses on uh, agronomic analytics and collecting farmer data and also lots of other data to cr- basically change agriculture and create a marketplace for a digital marketplace for farmers to buy and sell things, you know, provide a number of services, but also switch some of the industry dynamics um, within agriculture, which is very consolidated and dominated by big companies at multiple links in the, the chain. A couple of years, I helped stand up uh, the crop marketing business at FBN, which was a, a new business line at the time. The, the focus of that was helping farmers better access markets and get better value for the crops that they were growing, you know, ranging from mostly row crops. So corn, soybeans, um, wheat, but also variety specific uh, strains, which are more premium markets, and then also new crops and getting them to find new opportunities to make money. Two years there was an amazing introduction to Silicon Valley because the company at that point had about 100 employees when I joined, had already raised a lot of money, and then was growing and scaling significantly. Uh, After two years, I think that for me, I was looking for a challenge to go in earlier into a company where a lot of things are still on the table. I mean, where ranging from what is the business going to be successful, what is it going to even focus on, and catching things at the more formative stages was a challenge that I wanted. And I also had some defined areas that I within agriculture that I was uh, particularly passionate about that were related to. Uh, sustainability. And then meanwhile, I was most interested in really groundbreaking technologies where it wasn't just, I like marketplaces and other things where you're crowdsourcing information, but really where it's deep tech 
And Safe Traces was a company that I had actually been introduced to by a couple of the investors who I knew well. And they started talking to me about, well, they have this DNA tagging technology that it can be used to track and trace food products directly on the product. You're essentially using DNA tags that are invisible and tasteless and odorless and, you know, and that you basically can put on a kernel of grain or a piece of produce. And the value of that is being able to really have much higher assurance of the safety of that food, being able to authenticate that it actually came from a certain place, and then understanding all the production practices that were used to produce something and whether it was sustainable or not and all that. And it really just captured my imagination. And so after learning about it and talking with the company, I joined. At that point in late 2018, early 2019, the company was exclusively focused on food-based and ag-based applications of our DNA tagging technology. And that was what I had been focused on. So I was focused on commercializing the technology and finding new markets and generating revenue and doing all the stuff that startups need to do. And then later in 2019, we had a leadership change where our founder moved on and I succeeded him. And then at the end of 2019, we we're basically putting together a whole strategy uh, focused uh, in time to Q2 2020. And uh, for people who can kind of put together the dots, uh, that was exactly when the pandemic hit and basically everything changed. And so for us, what that meant was our food based applications where we had to get into food processing plants. We have physical technology. We're basically shut down because all those plants were on lockdown. And after a few weeks when it was clear this wasn't going away anytime soon and it was going to have significant challenges for us in terms of our previous strategy, we started thinking amongst the team, what are, what are we going to do? We need to find uh, something else because what we had been doing was had been totally upended by the pandemic. And we had a real ace in our hole in that the backstory of our technology and the DNA tagging has its roots in biosecurity and was developed out of Lawrence Livermore National Labs for um, being able to test airborne biological agents and specifically anthrax spores, creating particles that could safely mimic someone releasing anthrax spores or another airborne biological agent in a public place, and then being able to track where is that going to go? Where is it going to create an exposure risk to the public? And then being able to test biosecurity and bioterror defenses to see how effectively they can take those contaminants out of the air. And so we had never done anything commercially as a company focused on indoor air quality and safety, but we had all this R&D that had just been hibernated and was sitting on the shelf. And once we pieced together that COVID was uh, likely being transmitted through respiratory aerosols, and then we started looking at, well, how are buildings verifying whether the building is safe for people to occupy them and how well the HVAC system and other ventilation was performing, and we looked at the diagnostic market, we quickly realized, well, there's nothing really. You know, there are all these traditional tools of being able to assess indoor air quality, none of which are really geared towards 
pathogens and airborne pathogens. And so we put together kind of straw man of here's a way we could take our core tech and create a product and commercialize it. Let's go take it out to some companies to see if there's any interest. We quickly went from that to some discussions with some large Bay Area multinationals who immediately bit on that and wanted us to come in and do assessments of their buildings. And it was really addressing a gap that they had and providing valuable data regarding their building safety. And we went from a couple pilots working initially in a big corporate office and then moving to a prison environment that was dealing with lots of outbreaks. And we said, we're, we're onto something here. We got the validation of product market fit that told us that there is a big opportunity here. And so starting the end of last year, we've been sprinting towards uh, commercializing and digitizing our core technology in a way that can be scaled to to meet global demand at this point. I mean, we are onto a big problem, not only that it is a big problem for COVID, but also for when, when you look at the stats regar- regarding uh, respiratory infections in buildings, it was staggering to me that even prior to COVID, you're having $50 billion a year of cost associated with people getting sick from seasonal flu and other airborne diseases. And then also money is being not spent well because people don't understand kind of risk in buildings and there's a big kind of sustainability angle related to what we're doing too in terms of carbon emissions that our data can be used. So coming into this, I knew nothing about indoor air quality. I didn't know anything about the built environment really from a business standpoint. And so we've been learning on the fly, but it just shows you that in startups, you need to be ready for anything. And you really, you know, it goes back to military mantra of, you know, fight the battle or fight the war, not the plan. We had a plan and conditions on the ground completely changed. And if we kept fighting the plan that we were on, then it would have not been successful for our company. But, you know, challenges created opportunities for us. And we found something that had not been part of the plan, but we are flexible and nimble to adapt to. And now we're in a really, really exciting place on indoor air quality, but also the food traceability work that we had been doing is still something that we can pursue. And that market continues to be something that we're looking at for the future. So I want to underscore for listeners who don't have a background in entrepreneurship. For me, you know, having done this for 10 years, it is difficult to fathom the amount of adaptability. Eric is telling obviously a, a succinct version of the story, but I can only imagine the amount of stress that that presents as you have a game plan. And then literally the world is changing overnight. Everything that you're doing as a business is now no longer the same momentum and being able to identify the bigger opportunity. And there are, I would bet money, nine out of 10 entrepreneurs that that ship would have run aground. It would have, it would not be a going concern anymore. So I just want to recognize that ability to just not throw in the towel and to recognize and then like even find something bigger. And then you've got the old line of business that is still there when you're able to address it. That's really incredible. One thing I just wanted to ask was how that was for you as a person where, you know, you talked about mission and so much of your mission up until then was around food. But then I see this new mission evolving that's still service and safety and all of these things, but it drops that through line of food. Like, was that difficult to pivot with the company into an area where you didn't have deep expertise and, and potentially maybe not as much passion as the, the previous iteration of the company? 
Yeah, it, it was very challenging and it wasn't challenge. So from a technical standpoint, keep in mind our company is primarily scientists and engineers um, with a relatively small but growing commercial team. So the actual technical side of things was actually okay because it required a lot of work on our side but the fundamental science was very similar to what we were doing previously. And that was a huge advantage. The challenge was on the go-to-market and the commercial side, where you're dealing with a completely different ecosystem of customers, partners, problems, you know, the way the dynamics and the incentives work in the market, different people you're having to deal with, where there was virtually no overlap. And that was the hard part. And that was where we needed to quickly get up to speed. We needed to be fast, quick learners. We needed to bring in expertise through hiring, through building an advisory group that could help guide us through this. And then just being very curious and learning and reading a lot. And I still have huge humility of coming into a new market. I don't come in arrogantly thinking that I or our team know everything. And so you've got to ask questions. You've got to think deeper. You've got to probe. you got to really understand what's going on. That is hard. Like to your question, that is not an easy thing to do, but it's possible. And you've got to have a mixture of a deliberate strategy and plan, persistence, luck. All these things matter. But I go back to my military experience, and I say this in, in earnest, the most entrepreneurial environment I've been in, and now multiple startups, was the Army. And maybe that was unique to my experience being in a counterinsurgency as a junior officer and being in my unit with my leadership that empowered junior leaders. But it wasn't just, hey, follow orders, do this, do that. It was what about this valley in eastern Afghanistan is a real problem area. Go figure out what's going on there. And then we're going to start developing a strategy and being very involved and taking high ownership in that. And then going and dealing with all the challenges when things are hitting the fan and it is existential for you to figure things out. Uh, that is very similar to a startup and what we had to deal with. And I felt like my military experience uniquely prepared me for this, where you're not phased by things. It's hard, but you know that you're going to get through it. You know that you're going to have hard days, that things are going to go badly, but you keep the faith. And that's your responsibility as a leader. And then also to bring other people on board with that, because they're going to key off of your confidence, your ability to navigate this, and then to also be a part of that solution too. So yeah, it's really freaking hard um, and it's not over. The battle continues, but you need to have a certain kind of constitution to be able to put up with the roller coaster and the volatility of startup life. And now we're dealing with an extreme version of that in, in the pandemic. But that being said, people who can figure it out, the uh, fortune favors the bold. I mean, there's nothing that is impossible. You just have to be very adaptive and, and kind of navigate your way through these situations. That's great. I, I, I think it's such a, you, you articulated it so perfectly. And it's something that I get really frustrated by is the public perception that military is taking orders. And I look back on my own entrepreneurial journey and I'm like, I'm, I'm very grateful for my experience at business school. And the experience I had on submarines was by far the most applicable for startups of finding ways to overcome 
continuous challenges and a lot of ambiguity. I appreciate the way that you put that. I know we only have a few minutes left here. And I also know we covered a fraction of the potential ground we could have. I always like to just make space at the end. If there's anything we didn't cover that you want to, to make sure that you share before you wrap up. Yeah, so a couple of things. Uh, first, really grateful for the opportunity and also for the service you're providing. I think that I can go back to my transition out of the active duty army. Uh, just it's so valuable to hear about other people's experiences. And a lot of that happens through your network and through this person or that person that you know. But being able to tell the stories of lots of different people who've been through it before, I think is invaluable to any veteran transitioning or someone who's gone through the transition and is still you know, looking at the next thing. And so I, I'm a huge fan of your, your podcast. Thanks for what you're doing. I think the other thing I would say is that to veterans, you're not alone. There's tremendous goodwill amongst other veterans. I, for me, anytime I talk with a veteran, whether it's through an alumni some uh, network, someone's reaching out, or it's other uh, veterans who are particularly interested in startups, which is a whole unique animal within the kind of job market. Even thinking that veterans do, like that's a good place for you to focus. I think for those who have high risk appetites and who like the idea of inventing and innovating and building, veterans, I mean, there's precedent for many different veteran-led companies that have crushed it. And I think that while some veterans may want something more stable and more corporate or depending on what, what they're looking for, startups can be an area where veterans can really punch above their weight. And it also is very biased towards action. Their leadership goes a really, really long way. So I'm very passionate about veterans coming into the startup world, whether it's coming into our company or they're looking for guidance or mentorship on starting their own business or navigating roles and opportunities that they see in the startup world. I think that there's a very strong network of other uh, startup-focused vets like me who are really ready to, to help and support because we've been through it before. We know how valuable that support is. Well, Eric, I wish we had, uh, one, I wish we were in person right now with a, a beer between us and two, wish we had more time to go into your background. But I really am, you know, your your career is impressive to, to behold on the sidelines. But I think what I respect most about you is the passion that you bring to things that it's so clear that the passion, love and care that you had for the people you served with in Afghanistan and the losses that you mourned and gave yourself room to grieve and the way in which you continue amidst having a family and a growing startup, you continue to fight this fight for your Afghan comrades and just the, the beauty of that contribution. So thank you for all of those things. Thank you for the wisdom that you shared with our audience today. Really appreciate the opportunity and thanks so much for everything that you're doing. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our chief of staff, Steve Bain, our editor, Lex Brown, and our head of social media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. 
Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.